I would take this opportunity to welcome you this morning on this last Sunday of 2018. It just, it just doesn't seem possible, really, that we've come to the end of another year, and in just a day or two, we'll be beginning a new year together. But praise to God for his many manifold graces to us and undeserved mercies that uh, we have just fresh and new opportunities to know our God, to know Christ, to love him, and to just spend time with him and with one another uh, together. So what a joy, what a privilege it is. And this morning as we come together, I want to use this Sunday as kind of a, a bridge, you know, putting a, uh, the closing bookmark on 2018 and opening the, uh, the bookend to 2019, you know, just kind of bridging between the two and, and using it as a time to focus our minds upon the glory of Christ. Over the past about four or five years, I was kind of going back through my notes, uh, I had set aside about four years ago the last Sunday of the year where I was going to preach a historical message. And for some, I was going back, I didn't do it last year. And then the year, two years before that, I didn't do it. So it's kind of been an every other year thing. We've looked at a historical sermon from the past, utilizing it to just stir our hearts and affections in the present. We'll talk a little bit more in just a few moments of why I think that's significant for us to do. And that will be our path this morning as well. And as we're using it and using it to focus our hearts upon looking unto Jesus. So uh, let me read our text this morning from which the sermon will come, Hebrews chapter 12. Our, our text will be verse 2, but I'll go back and begin reading at verse 1 this morning. There the writer of Hebrews writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, that is the word of our Lord. Let's pray and ask his blessings upon the proclamation of his word today and the singing of the glories of Christ among his people. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning grateful for this another undeserved day that you've given to us a day that we might come together in your presence to worship you, the Almighty, the great eternal God, our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Father, we do come before you and we worship you and praise you for the God that you are, holy and righteous, one of a kind, solitary in all your perfections. There is none like you. And we thank you, God, for your eternal gospel, which is our hope today founded in eternity past. Father, your plan for your glory, for our good, for our joy, for our redemption, for our sins, our mighty sins against you. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. And Jesus, we come to you today and we thank you for all that you are and all that you've done for us. There are no words to capture the majesty of God in flesh, come to live the life we should have lived and to die the death we deserve to die, who rose again from the dead three days later and now, even as we meet here today, is seated at the right hand of the Father, sovereign, ordaining all things. Jesus, we praise you. We bend the knee to you. And Holy Spirit, we come to you today and we pray for your ongoing work in our hearts and lives. Lord, we wouldn't be where we are today without you, without the Spirit, 
without your work of grace upon our hearts, taking out that heart of rebellion, that heart of enmity, that heart of hatred towards God, and putting in a heart of love and affection, of desire. And we pray that what you've begun in our hearts will continue even this day as we consider, consider Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. God, if we're honest, we minimize really what that means. We may not even fully understand it. And to complicate things, we have an enemy who prances around as an angel of light to deceive us. To deceive us with a, a fake Christ and an inadequate understanding of what it means to look unto Jesus. So today, would you help us? Today, would you whet our appetite to the majesty of Christ? Take where we think we are and show us where you demand we be. Show us, Father, how much more there is to know of Christ and to look unto and to rejoice in the sufficiency of Christ for everything that we will face in the new year. And you, our triune God, as we sing your praises this morning, receive our praises. They come from our hearts. Grant us the grace to worship you as you deserve. Meet with us this day. It is in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. We're familiar with the phrase, we've, it's, significant to us as a church. But the question I think we all have to wrestle with is how can a person know for certain that they are indeed following the exhortation of the author of the book of Hebrews here? How can they know for sure they're looking unto Jesus savingly? That they have truly been, everything that has set up Hebrews 12 2, everything before it, how can they know that the, they've been, been indwelt by the Spirit of God to treasure Christ supremely over everything that the author of Hebrews has already described, and, and that truly they are living a life of looking unto Jesus. Is, is the answer to that, well, I read my Bible. I'm looking unto Jesus every day. I have a quiet time. Is it enough to say, well, I attend church regularly. I attend a church, and I mean, they're constantly using the phrase, look unto Jesus. It's almost like in every sermon, he just can't think of anything else to preach. He just says, the application's always the same. I wish he'd get creative. It's always looking unto Jesus. But I attend church regularly, so yes, of course I'm looking unto Jesus. Or, or might it be, well, you know, there's a tagline in Christianity today, Christ-centered. Well, I'm, I'm a Christ-centered individual. I mean, I'm all about Jesus. I'm, I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm gonna, it's all about Jesus. I am Christ-centered. All of those things are well and fine, but do they capture what the author of Hebrews is talking about? When he describes, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's where we usually stop and we aim in that, yes. No, 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 the important part is what comes next, looking unto Jesus. You can't run the race with endurance without the grace that is looking unto Jesus. That's the important part. Without that, there is no running the race with endurance. You can try. This message this morning was first preached in the 1600s by a man named Isaac Ambrose. It was originally entitled, get ready for this, 
looking unto Jesus, a view of the everlasting gospel, or the soul's eyeing of Jesus as carrying on the great work of man's salvation from first to last. That was the title. We're going to simply call it a biblical explanation and exhortation of looking unto Jesus. It seems like I set out to do it every year, but for some reason it's been more like every other year. But for the past four years, every other year, I've preached a historic sermon from the past on the last Sunday of the year. And I could give you numerous reasons why I think it's significant. I'll give you three this morning. Number one, hearing such preaching connects us to brothers and sisters in Christian history to allow us to make sure we're in the same line, to make sure that over the course of time, we haven't begun to deviate towards a different understanding of Christianity than those who've come before us. A second reason, I think, it helps us to see more clearly into the glories of Christ and the wonders of the gospel because we're able to stand on the shoulders of giants and see further out than I'm able to see if I'm standing on my own two feet. I'm able to see things that maybe I've missed. Maybe in my day, in the day that we live in today, maybe there's things that that have, have been lost about the glories and excellencies of Christ. But by standing on the shoulders of giants, I can see out further into majesty than I would have been able to see on my own. And then a third, it helps us to discern novelties in our day. Every generation of Christian is faced with challenges from their culture, from the day in which they live. And there's always a knee-jerk reaction that says, well, The day that we live in today is far more challenging than those who lived in the 18th century, 17th century, 16th century, 5th century, 3rd century. It's far more challenging. We need to think in ways that they never thought before. That's a lie. That's a lie from hell. That's that's Satan prancing around as an angel of light, making us think we're so spiritual and so wisdom, so wise. We are not the first generation of Christians, and we do not have unique challenges. No temptation has taken you but such as is common to man. These types of sermons from the past are helpful to help expose some of the novelties where we may have added Christ plus something, something that we intended good to help us to serve Christ, but that is actually an addition to the gospel when the message of the gospel is Christ alone is enough. And I've chosen this particular sermon for two reasons. Number one, It will bless us immensely, immensely. And if you just heard me say this is somewhere from the 1600s and you've already started to gasp and you're wiggling in your chair ready to leave, just pause and ask God to to do something that you don't expect to happen. This sermon will bless you immensely if God will give you ears to hear, me ears to hear. And secondly, it is a very helpful contribution to our ongoing vision for this church of cultivating a church that is simply built on Christ, looking to Jesus. What's the vision for the church? It's Jesus. And I realize that sounds very bumper sticker-ish. But when we hear it as even Ambrose lays it out for us, I hope you get a grasp for maybe I have focused on the wrong things, even in the name of Jesus. But a church... It's built on Jesus internally. It changes everything. It changes perception. I think this will be a very helpful contribution 
to helping us think in those terms, both corporately but also privately. As we begin a new year together, 2019, I have no doubt you'll have your own ideas for how you're going to invest in your spiritual life in the new year. Maybe you're going to have a a new reading program, a new Bible study, I mean, whatever. Great. But this will be a helpful contribution to whatever you're thinking of doing. Is it going to accomplish this? Helping me to see Christ more clearly, more beautifully, so that he is everything to me. So my prayer is that today our appetites will be whetted as never before. And that even now you'll pray with me earnestly for God to show us, draw us, satisfy us, captivate us, fascinate us, enliven us with a deeper affection for Jesus Christ. And with that introduction out of the way, how might we understand what the author of Hebrews means when he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Verse 2, here's our text. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of, my, of our faith. With the reality of sin, an enemy prancing around as an angel of light, who wants to distort that? What's a biblical understanding of it? Well, I'll be reading this morning from Isaac Ambrose's sermon, Looking Unto Jesus. His introduction to the message is this. The most excellent subject to discourse or write of is Jesus Christ. Augustine, having read Cicero's works, commended them for their eloquence. But he passed this sentence upon them. They're sweet, because, but they're not great, because the name of Jesus is not in them. And Bernard, saying near the same, If thou writest it, doth not relish with me, unless I read Jesus there. If thou disputest or conferrest, it doth not relish with me, unless Jesus is there. Indeed, all we say is but unsavory, if it's not seasoned with this salt from the Apostle Paul. I determine not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul resolved with himself before he preached among the Corinthians that this should be the only point of knowledge that he would profess himself to have skill in and that in the course of his ministry he would labor to bring them to. This, looking to Jesus, he made the breadth and length and depth and height of his knowledge. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In this knowledge of Christ, there is an excellency above all other knowledge. There's nothing more pleasing and comfortable, more animating and enlivening, more ravishing and soul-contenting. Only Christ is the sun and center of all divine revealed truths. We can preach nothing else as the object of our faith, as the necessary element of your soul's salvation, which doth not some way or other either meet in Christ or refer to Christ. Only Christ is the whole of man's happiness, the sun to enlighten him, the physician to heal him, the wall of fire to defend him, the friend to comfort him, the pearl to enrich him, the ark to support him, the rock to sustain him under the heaviest pressures. As an hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, and as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land, 
Only Christ is the ladder between earth and heaven, the mediator between God and man, a mystery which the angels of heaven desire to pry and peep and look into. This is a blessed subject indeed. Who would not be glad to pry into it, to be acquainted with it? This, John says, is life eternal, to know God and Jesus Christ whom he hath sent. Come then, let us look on the Son of Righteousness. We cannot receive harm but good by such a look. Indeed, by looking long on the natural sun, we may have our eyes dazzled, our faces blackened. But by looking unto Jesus, we shall have our eyes clearer and our faces fairer. If the light of the eye rejoice the heart, how much more when we have such a blessed object to look upon. As Christ is more excellent than all the world, so this sight transcends all other sights. It is the epitome of a Christian's happiness, the quintessence of evangelical duties, looking unto Jesus. Well, in this text, we have the act and the object. That's kind of his outline, the act and the object. The act in the original is very emphatic. Look, the English does not fully express it. Look signifies two things, an averting or drawing off the eye from one object to another. The one signifies turning off the eye from all other objects, and the other idea is a fast fixing of the eye upon such an object and only such an object. So it is both a looking off and a looking on. On what? Well, that's the object. That's his second point. A looking unto Jesus. This indeed is the glad tiding of the gospel, the great gospel privilege, and our gospel duty to look unto Jesus. Well, that's his introduction. And now Ambrose moves into the body of the sermon, and he's already said that looking unto Jesus is two things. Looking off all other things, and looking only unto Christ. And now as he gets into the body of the sermon, he's going to focus upon that first part, looking off all other things. Here he goes. An explanation of the duty of looking off all other things. But first, we must look off all other things. And the note is this. We must take our mind from everything which might divert us in our Christian race from looking unto Jesus. Look, the first word or first piece of word in our text speaks to us thus. Hands off, eyes off from anything that stands in the way of Christ. I remember it was written over Plato's door. There's none that may come hither that's not a geometer. But on the door of our hearts, the text should say, no earthly manded man must enter here. Not anything in the world, be it ever so excellent. If it stand in the way of Jesus Christ, it's to be named that same day. We must not give a look or squint at anything that may hinder this fair and lovely sight of Jesus. This was the Lord's charge to Lot in the Old Testament. Genesis 19, look not behind thee. He was so far to renounce and detest the lewdness of Sodom as that he was not allowed a look towards it. 
Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. A Christian's aim is beyond visible things. Oh, when a soul comes to know what an eternal God is and what an eternal Jesus is and what an eternal crown is, when it knows the great design of Christ to save poor souls and to communicate himself eternally to such poor creatures as us, this takes off the edge of its desire as to visible temporal things. For what are they in comparison to him? I raise a question. But what things must we look off of? What are the things we're to look off of? He says there's two things, good things and evil things. Good things, the apostle tells us of a cloud of witnesses in verse 1, which no, no question in their season we are to look unto. But when this second object, Jesus Christ, comes into sight, he scatters the cloud away and sets up Jesus himself centrally. Now, the apostle wills us to turn our eyes from those cloud of witnesses and to turn them to Jesus. If you will indeed see a sight once for all, look to Jesus. Those great cloud of saints, though they be guides to us, yet they're nothing more than followers of him. Christ is the arch guide. Christ is the leader of them. Look on him. There is a time when James may say, take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example. But when Jesus comes forth, he says, I have given you an example. An example above all examples. Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord. Let all the saints, let all the seraphim cover their faces with their wings that we may look on Jesus and let all other good things go. Secondly, we look off not only good things, but evil things. In general, we must look off all things that are on this side of Jesus Christ, and so much the rather if they be evil things. In a simple word, don't miss this, we must look off ourselves. Whether it be sinful self, natural self, or religious self. In this case, we must draw our eyes off of ourselves and onto Jesus. In special, we must look off all that is in the world. And that's what the Apostle Paul commands us under the three headings, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. I'll call them pleasures, profits, and honors. So you see what he does there. The lust of the eyes, pleasures. The lust of the flesh, profits. The pride of life, honors that the world bestows upon us. Now listen to what he says about taking our eyes off of these things. We must look off this world in respect of its sinful pleasures. Jude tells us, such as are sensual have not the spirit. We cannot fixedly look on pleasures and look on Jesus at the same time. Did you hear that? We cannot both look on pleasures and Jesus at the same time. Job tells us, they take up the timbrel and harp and rejoice at the sound of the organ that spend their days in mirth are the same that say unto God, depart from us, 
for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto him? We have a lively example of this in Augustine's conversion. He would indeed have had Christ and his pleasure too. He says Augustine was a man of pleasure. He wanted Christ and to hang on to his pleasures. In his orchard, as he tells us in his book of Confessions, all his pleasures past represented themselves before his eyes, saying, Are you serious? Will you depart from us forever? And shall we be no more with thee forever? O Lord, saith Augustine, turn away my mind from thinking that which they objected to my soul. What filth, what shameful pleasures did they lay before mine eyes? At length, after this combat, a shower of tears came from him, and casting himself on the ground under a fig tree, he cries out, O Lord, how long, how long shall I say tomorrow, tomorrow? Why not today, Lord, why not today? Why should there not be an end of my filthy life even at this hour? Immediately after this, Augustine heard a voice as if it had been a boy or a girl singing, take up and read. And thereupon opening his Bible that lay by him, he opened it to Revelation 13. Paul writes, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Further than this sentence, I would not read, neither indeed was it needed, for presently it was as if God was pouring light into my heart. All of the darkness of my doubt and confusion fled away, his eyes were from that moment taken off pleasure and forever set on Christ. We must look off this world in respect of pleasure. Secondly, we must look off this world in respect of its prophets. A look on this keeps, our looking unto, keeps off our looking unto Jesus. John writes, if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Covetousness in Christians is spiritual adultery. When we have everything we need in God and Christ, and yet we desire to make our happiness in the creature or in the creation, this is nothing but whoring, adultery. Now, there are degrees in spiritual whoredom as, number one, the minding of this world. Uh, Ambrose writes, there may be adultery in the affections when the body is not defiled. What's Ambrose saying there? Ambrose is saying here, even if you have not physically engaged in sin against God, if your mind is filled with the thought, it's not filled with Christ. In that moment that our mind is filled with sin, we're guilty of spiritual adultery. And then he goes on, the setting of the heart upon the world. This is an even higher degree of spiritual adultery. Our hearts belong to Christ. And to take our heart and set it on the world, that's adultery. You cannot serve Christ and the world. And then he says the preferring of this world before Christ himself is the height of spiritual adultery. All those admiring thoughts of the world, those are Christ's. Those pains are Christ's. That love for the world, that's Christ's love. That time you're spending thinking about the world, that's Christ's time. 
the care that you're giving for the world, that's Christ's care. The earnestness you're giving to these things, that's Christ's earnestness. All belongs to Christ. And will you give what belongs to Christ to the world? Why continue to live as a professed prostitute that prefers every other thing in the world except your true husband, Christ? He says we must also look off the world in respect of its sinful honors. Look off the world in respect of its sinful pleasures, of its sinful profits, and then of the honors it bestows upon us. What is this honor but a certain inordinate desire to be well thought of? Amen, anybody? A desire to be well thought of, to be well spoken of, to, a desire to be praised, to be glorified by men. As if a man should run up and down the street after a feather flying in the air and tossed hither and thither with the gusts and blasts of infinite men's mouths. It's a question whether he even get the feather at all. But if he does, it's just a feather. Such is the pride of life, honor, vain glory, the applause of men. It's hard to obtain it, but even if you do obtain it, what is it but the few breaths of men's mouths that alter upon every light occasion? But worst of all, that desire for men's applause hinders our sight of Jesus Christ. Why must we look off everything that diverts our looking unto Jesus? Six reasons. Number one, because we cannot look fixedly on Christ and such things together at one time. The eye cannot both simultaneously look up and down. Let me pause here in the sermon. Try it. Try to look up and down at the exact same moment. One eye this way, one eye this way. Impossible. This is the point. We cannot look on Jesus Christ and simultaneously think. No man can serve two masters, Jesus says. Secondly, why must we look off everything that diverts our attention away from Jesus? Because while we look on these things, we cannot see the beauty of Christ at the same time. Suppose you take a squint look at Christ. Maybe in your quiet time, you squint and you see Christ. Well, then you walk away and you have a direct look on other things. Christ will be of no esteem. This was the voice of sinners concerning Christ. He hath no form, no comeliness. When we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Indeed, beauty is the attraction of the soul. The soul must set a beauty in that which it lets out itself into desiring. But our wishing looks on other things, making Christ low and contemptible by comparison. If you only squint at Christ for a few minutes in the day and spend the rest of the day looking at the things of the world, which one are you going to find more stunning and beautiful? The third reason, why look off everything else that diverts our looking unto Jesus? Because all other things in comparison are not worthy a look. They are but as vile things as under things, as poor and low and mean and base things in comparison of Christ. Paul says, I count all things but loss, all things, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. 
I count them but dung that I may win Christ. Some translate the word dung chaff, others dog's meat, others excrement, others dung. All agree. The point is this. They are things that men usually cast away with indignation. We don't want them. Number four, why must we look off all other things? Why does it divert us away from Christ? Number four, because of the very law of marriage. Think about your own marriage as Ambrose speaks here. Genesis 2, therefore shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. In salvation, the Lord Christ marries himself to the souls of his saints. Hosea chapter 2, I will betroth thee unto me forever. I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. And for this cause, the soul must forsake all and cleave unto Christ as married wives do. We must leave all for our husband, the Lord Jesus. That makes sense, doesn't it? Number five, why must we look off everything that diverts our attention away from Christ? Because Christ is jealous. Jealousy is a passion in the soul that will not endure sharing in the object beloved. The woman that hath a jealous husband must leave all her other companions. If she cast any look or glance after them, the husband will rage with jealousy. Christians, our God is a jealous God. Our Christ is a jealous Christ. He cannot endure that we should look on any other things so as to lust after them. And then a sixth reason. Why in the world must we turn off all other things and look unto Jesus? Because all other things can never satisfy the eye. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. If we will behold the great King Jesus in his most excellent glory, we must come out of doors. We must abandon all else. We must, we must go to him because in him is the satisfaction we are so looking for, beholding him in daily meditation, the glory of Jesus Christ. Now Ambrose gives us some exhortations. He's laid out, looking unto Jesus means looking off all other things. That's the first part of it. And he's provided some explanation why we would want to look off all other things. And now he gives us some motivations. A word of exhortation, Christians. I beseech you, look off all other things. I know I'm pleading with you for a hard thing to do. I really need the rhetoric of an angel to persuade you to turn your eyes off these things. But it's God only who must persuade. And yet let me offer a few considerations and then leave the issue with God. Number one, a motivation to look off all other things. Consider the difference between all these objects and Christ. Christ is a real, solid, substantial, glorious thing. All other things are temporary, fading things, but Christ is an enduring substance. The same yesterday, today, and forever, which is and which was and which is to come. All other things are thorns, vexations of spirits, but Christ is full of joy and comfort, a most ravishing object, all composed of loves or altogether lovely. 
Who would make it his business to fill his jars with pebbles when he can have pearls and gold and silver or precious things? What? Must you look off your sins? Why, see before you the grace of the Spirit of Christ. Must you look off your idle, sinful, com sinful company? See before you the fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Must you look off your pomp and glory? See before you the privilege of adoption. You shall be called heirs and sons and daughters of God, heirs and joint heirs with Christ. Must you look off worldly riches? See before you the riches of Christ. Must you look off sinful pleasures? See before you the fullness of joy at Christ's right hand, for in Him are pleasures forevermore. Must you look off your own righteousness? Look at the righteousness of Christ. Oh, what a vast difference there is between these objects and between Christ Himself. Secondly, another motivation. Consider Christ looked off heaven and heavenly things for you. How much more should you off, look off earth and earthly things for Him? Christ left the glory, the company, the pleasures of paradise for you. He made Himself of no reputation. He nothinged Himself, as it were, for you. Oh, let that melting love win you to Him and wean you off all other things. Two more motivations He gives. Consider how short your time is in this world. This is the argument of the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 7, because the time is short, therefore let us use this world as not abusing it. Therefore let our hearts be taken off these things, yet for just a few more days you shall be here, and then no more. Time passeth on. Many hundred diseases are ready to assault you. You that are hearing, talking, and walking you will very shortly be carried on men's shoulders and laid in the dust and there left to the worms and darkness and corruption. You're already almost there. You've only got but a few more days, maybe a few more months, maybe a few more years. But then, what is it once they are gone? What does it profit a man if he gains all of this and he loses his soul. And then finally, the motivation part. Consider the great account that upon your death you will give to God for all earthly things. It is the sin of most of the sons of men to look on creature comforts, but they consider not the account that we're going to have to give before God for treasuring them more than him. O oh, Christian, here is a prevailing motive to take off your eyes. Consider the account you must give to God. What if you were to die now and go the way of all flesh and then to make up your reckoning? What good would it do to you to remember all the contentments and pleasures you once enjoyed upon the earth? If the factor after many years spent in foreign countries at last returns home with this bill of accounts, oh, it will be a sad reckoning. 
if the bill of God comes in and you've spent all of your time gazing and looking upon earthly things. So Ambrose has explained the first part of looking unto Jesus, looking off all other things. He's exhorted us and motivated us to do so. And Ambrose, this is one of the reasons I love this sermon. Let me give you some direction how to do this. Number one, every day study more and more the vanity of the creature. Read over the book of Ecclesiastes. Maybe as we're entering into a new year, maybe you want to earmark this as Ambrose's counsel. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. It is enough that through the assistance of Christ to teach you the vanity of the creatures. A serious and fruitful meditation of the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What work might that word make in your hearts? Men usually look on these things through some false glass at a distance, which makes them seem so admirable. But if they could see them truly in themselves, oh, how nothing they would be. Or if they could see those things in comparison to Christ, oh, how vain they would be. Honors and greatness in that respect would appear as bubbles. Pleasures and delights in that respect would appear as shadows. So how to look off other things? Number one, study more and more the vanity of this world and this creature. Number two, converse little with any evil thing this side of Christ. Have as little to do with the world, the sinful pleasures, profits, riches, manners of it as you possibly can. The less, the better. Things of this world have a gluttonous quality. Amen? If you let the heart lie anywhere, any while amongst them, your heart will cleave to them. And if one cleaves to them, there will be no way to part from them but by grace or hell. Man, that's staggering. Number three, study more the vanity of the creature, converse little with the things of the world. Number three, be more and better acquainted with Jesus Christ. Get nearer to Him. Be more in communion with Him. Get more tastes of Christ in heaven and earth. will relish the worse for them. Oh, when I look on Christ and consider that He was the Lord of heaven and earth who put Himself into so poor and low a condition merely for the redeeming of His elect, how should this but deaden my heart to the world? I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord and do count them as dung that I may win Christ. Well, if Christ be in view, then likewise for us, all the world will be dung and dross and loss in comparison. The glory of Christ will darken all other things in the world. Do you believe that? If not, we've not seen Christ clear enough. Number four, set before us the example of such saints who accounted themselves pilgrims and strangers upon the earth. This is like read Christian biography. Read sermons of people from the past. Look at how others have Trek this. The apostle gives you a catalog of such who confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. See how they were used. 
They were stoned and sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Who were these? They were they of whom the world was not worthy. Oh, when you read how joyfully these servants of the Most High went through their wilderness conditions, I would think, fix your eyes and your heart upon them as an example. Number five, another way to do, how to look off other things. Go into your meditation on heaven and stay there a while. Just go think about heaven, biblically, scripturally. The mind that is in heaven cannot attend these earthly things. Would a man leave his plow and harvest in the field to run with children hunting after butterflies? Of course not. No more will a soul that is taking survey of heaven and heavenly things fix his eye on such poor things below. Oh, when a Christian hath but a glimpse of eternity with Christ and then looks down on the world again, oh, how the world is nothing in comparison. And then sixthly, how to look off all other things? Cry mightily unto God that he would take your hearts and eyes off the world. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity, praise David. Christian, either God must do this work or you will be weary in the multitude of your endeavors. What's he saying there? It's probably not news to you that looking unto Jesus means you've got to look off all other things. Why do we get frustrated with that? It's because we find it hard to do so. That's what Ambrose just said. Therefore, as part of this, you're crying out to God. You have to detach me, and you have to give me eyes to see Christ in a way I've never seen before. It's in the book. It's in the preaching of the word. It's there every Lord's Day, but for some reason, my eyes aren't seeing it. Open my eyes that I'm not bored with Jesus, that I'm not sleeping through Jesus, that I'm not, Jesus isn't dull to me. Open my eyes that he is everything. If the heart bend downwards, Go to God to erect it. If it be after covetousness things, cry to God and say, Lord, not after covetousness, incline my heart to you. Six things there that Ambrose gives us. An explanation, looking off all other things, a motive to do it, and directions of how to do it. But then he says, looking unto Jesus is looking off, but secondly, looking on to. For the act, you must look unto Jesus. Looking to Jesus is either ocular or mental. Pay attention to this. Ocular, I mean, looking unto Jesus is either you're fixing your physical eyeballs on Jesus or it's mental in the heart. You're fixing your, the eyes of your heart on Jesus. For the ocular vision, there will be that in heaven. For there we shall look on Jesus physically. But till then, we must walk by faith, not by sight. So for mental vision, the inward vision of the soul is that which we focus on when we look unto Jesus. And the excellency of this mental inward soul sight is far above ocular sight. For there are more beautiful things to be seen by the eye of the mind than by the eye of the body. This mental, internal, soul-looking is either notional or theoretical, practical 
or experimental. The first we call, stay with me on this part, barely looking at all. It's an enlightening of our understandings with some measure of speculative sight in spiritual and heavenly mysteries. That means what? We listen to a sermon on Jesus. He's excellent. He's beautiful. It fills my mind. I got a glimpse of it, but my eye hasn't really fixed on it. I haven't seen it and my, my heart been drawn to it. The second we call the look of our mind and heart, whereby we not just see spiritual things, but we're affected with them. We desire, we love, we believe, we rejoice, we embrace, we throw everything off because I must have that. And this was the look that Paul longed for when he's prayed in Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Let me pause there. This is where I said at the beginning, we're familiar with looking unto Jesus, but do we really understand what looking unto Jesus is? Simply opening your Bible or hearing a message on looking unto Jesus is not enough. That's not, it is a soul that has been captivated, a heart that sees him and loves him and treasures him and desires him and believes him and embraces and throws everything off and he is everything to me. That's what we're talking about, looking unto Jesus. Back into the sermon. That's the action, looking unto Jesus, looking off, looking unto in a way that we're affected by it. Secondly, what's the object? The object is Jesus. The most blessed object that the eye of the mind could ever fix upon. Of all the objects under heaven, Jesus has preeminence and perfection, and therefore he should have preeminence in our hearts. It is he that will make us most happy when we possess him. And we cannot but be joyful to look, but to look upon him. This object, Jesus, is comprehensive. In him are the fullness of the offices of Christ. In him are two natures, God and man. In him are the qualities and the excellencies of the God-man. Oh, what a variety of sweet matter is in Jesus. A holy soul cannot get tired or bored in looking at Jesus. We know that looking at one thing over and over quickly tires us or bores us, right? Isn't that why we get frustrated with repetition? Having to look at the same thing over and over again. That's what Ambrose is saying. Looking at the same thing over and over again, it bores us. It wears us out. It tires us. And here we are saying, look unto Jesus consistently he says a holy soul cannot tire itself in viewing Jesus cannot be bored with Jesus because Christ is all he is all and in all all belonging to being all belonging to well-being in things below Jesus now some things have excellency down here but none have all excellency and this withers contemplation at the root. Contemplation is soul recreation. And recreation is kept up by a variety. Right? So we don't like looking at the same thing over and over. We don't take our same vacation to the same place over and over and over. Right? We want variety. We want something different. Do you see variety in Christ? 
Oh, what a variety is in Jesus. Variety of time, he's Alpha and Omega. Variety of beauty, he's both white and ruddy. Variety of quality, he's a lion and a lamb, a servant and a son. Variety of excellency in the world, he's man and God. Oh, where shall we begin in this view of Jesus? Who shall declare his generations? Or who shall count and reckon his age? All the evangelists draw out the variety of Jesus. This inward, experimental knowing, considering, desiring, hoping, believing, loving, joying, calling on Jesus is what it means to look unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus is that great ordinance appointed by God for our most special good. How many souls have busied themselves in the use of other means? Listen to this, for us who are religious. And though in them, Christ hath communicated some virtue, meaning we've busied ourselves with religious, doing other ordinances, if you will. You know, we attend church. We partake of communion, baptism. We do all kinds of church things. We busy ourselves with those and miss the most important ordinance of God, looking unto Jesus. Such a one as deals immediately with Christ will do more in a day than by the combination of all other ordinances in a year. Do you hear what he's saying there? What's more important than all of our religious activity? Looking unto Jesus. And the promise is looking unto Jesus will produce all those things out of our love and affection for him. Looking unto Jesus is the act. But how? It is such a look as includes knowing and considering and desiring Jesus and hoping in Jesus and believing Jesus and loving Jesus and rejoicing in Jesus, enjoying Jesus and conforming to Jesus. It is such a look that stirs up our affections for Him. A such a look as leaves a quickening and an enlivening effect upon the Spirit. It's a look that works us into a warm affection, raised resolution, a holy and unright and upright conversation. What he's saying there is we begin a new year. You've probably got this year, I want to be more effective in sharing the gospel with my family. I want to be more, I want to be more faithful in my Bible study and my reading of God's word. I want to be more diligent in prayer. Do you hear what he's saying here? There's two ways to go about those things. You can on January 1st launch out, pull up your bootstraps, and go. Do it as best you can, or, and you'll have the same results as you've always had. You may get a day or two in, and then you're going to run out of steam. Or, you can hone in on knowing Christ, loving him more, setting your gaze, looking off all else, the heart affected by him, and the natural overflow of Christ being the pinnacle of love for you, you will find. I'm talking about Christ to my lost friends. Not because I, I've resolved to do it this year, but because Christ is everything. I find myself praying, not because I've been so diligent this year. I'm better in 2019 than I was. It's because communion with Christ is more important to me than even a meal. I'll skip a meal because fellowship with Christ is more important. Time in the Word, I'll, I'll go and spend time here because every page is about knowing Christ. Do you see what Ambrose is getting at here? We can fill our calendar with all kinds of religious ordinances and duties. But if you do them without the ordinance looking unto Jesus, 
it won't produce what you desire. As Ambrose prepares to conclude the message, he gives a word of reproof and then a motivation. Let me bring these to you. Looking unto Jesus, he says, Christian is a choice. It's a high gospel ordinance. Oh, how this should reprove thousands of us. How many of them are, are there that do not mind this duty? He talks about, I'm going to skip this part, the ungodly, who they neglect this duty of looking Jesus. And he talks about why, because their soul is in darkness. But in the midst of talking about the unbeliever, he brings up us, the professed believer. He says this, Now I speak not only of the Indian and other savages of the unchristian world whose souls are in darkness, but I speak also of us, the church, who live within the paradise of the Christian church. Please don't leave me here. I speak within the paradise of the Christian church that have nothing to distinguish them from the Indian miscreants or the savages, but an outward conformity of religion. Why, alas, these are, the Lord's that the, these are those that the Lord complains of. They have eyes and see not. My people have forgotten me days without number. What he's saying there. There may be people who sit week after week and with eat in the paradise of the church, in the context of a church building, who because they're religious, they think they're Christian. But they have never looked unto Jesus any more than the one on the other side of the world who's never heard of Jesus. And they are lost in sin. He's reproving the religious man who has never taken this looking unto Jesus seriously. But then he goes on. He goes on to address those who are believers. Consider you that plead that you are Christians and that you mind Christ, even at this very instant that you're in this duty, even while I'm sitting here preaching this message. And yet, only you can know if this is true of you. Ambrose is saying, here I am preaching about looking unto Jesus, and you're saying, that's me. And yet, as I'm preaching it, you're not doing it. You don't care to do it. You don't will to do it. And it's not within you to desire to do it. Now, I can only search my own soul for that one. And you have to search your own. This is whom Christ spake in Matthew 7. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works. They will plead on that last day as they plead now. But for all that, you know the answer. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. If that's you this morning, surely Christ will say to you one day, I know you not. I was a stranger to you upon the earth. I could not even have a single eye from you. But when your lazy, idle spirit found it important to do so. Now out of my sight, 
I will never own you nor look upon you more. Ambrose goes on to give just a couple of exhortations. Oh, Christian, that I could persuade your heart to look unto Jesus. I ask you, is Jesus not worthy of this? Why then are your thoughts no more upon Him? Why are not your hearts continually with Him? Why are not your strongest desires and daily delights in and after the Lord Jesus? What's the matter? Will not God give you leave to approach this light? Will He not suffer your souls to taste and see? Why then are these words even in the text? Look unto Jesus. Why then doth He cry and double His cry? <coughs> behold me and behold me. Oh, vile hearts, how delightfully and unweariedly can we think of vanity. How freely and frequently can we think of our pleasures. Christians, this should humble us and cast down our hearts that we have in them no more of Christ. Oh, turn your thoughts from all, all earthly vanities. Bend your souls to study Christ. Habituate yourselves to such contemplation as in the next use I shall present them. And let not those thoughts be seldom or cursory, but settle upon them, dwell there, bathe your soul in these delights, drench your affections in those rivers of pleasures, or rather in the sea of consolation. Oh, tie your soul in the heavenly galleries. Have your eyes set continually on Jesus Christ. Well, these are his motives. Consider your look on Jesus. It will maintain your communion with Jesus. Motives to look unto Jesus. It will maintain your communion with Jesus. Is not communion with Jesus very heaven aforehand, right? Heaven is about fellowship with Christ. Looking to Jesus here and now is heaven aforehand. Hereby we enjoy his person and all the sweet relations to his person, his death and all the saving fruits, privileges and influences of his death. Hereby we are brought into Christ's banqueting house, held in his galleries, his banner over us being love. By looking unto Jesus, we are carried up into the mount with Christ that we may see him as it were transfigured and may say with Peter, Master, it is good for us to be here and let us here build tabernacles. Oh, it's a happy thing to have Christ dwelling in our hearts and to lodge in Christ's bosoms. Secondly, he goes on, consider that your daily necessities call for a frequent looking upon Jesus. Are you needy this morning? Do you have need as we enter into the new year? The answer is looking to Jesus. He says, you have need of Christ. You have need that he pray in you and need that He pray for you to your heavenly Father. You have need that He work in you, and you have need that He work for you before the Father. You have need that He present you and blameless before the Father. There's not a moment in your life wherein you don't stand in continual need of Christ. Will a hungry man forget his bread? No. Can the heart that pants for thirst Forget the river? Can a man in bondage forget the idea of freedom? Oh, then, 
Let your necessity drive you to Christ. Let it remind you of Christ, of your need for Him. Is He not the fountain that supplies all wants? Christian, consult your own experiences when you look up to Jesus and lean on Jesus. Are you not at that moment at your best rest? Thirdly, consider that an eye on Christ is one of your most unquestionable evidences of the sincerity of your faith. So important here. Consider that your eye on Christ is one of the most unquestionable evidences of the sincerity of your faith. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If Christ is your treasure, your heart will be on Christ. And surely a heart set upon Christ is a true evidence of saving grace. External activities, they're the easiest to try to measure. But those of the heart are the surest evidence. What's he saying there? For since to test the genuineness of your faith, don't look at the external. Begin with the internal. What are you treasuring? Is it Christ? Another motive to looking to Jesus, consider that looking on Jesus will strengthen your patience in distress. Anybody here need that? It will increase your patience in distress. This is the very particular motive of the text. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners and distress against himself lest you be worried and faint in your own minds. It's a story of a martyr that having offered him a cup of spirits, of wine, to sustain him when he seemed to faint under his greatest trial, he returned this answer, my Lord and my master had gall and vinegar to drink, as if he had been astonished to see himself fare better than Jesus. How might looking to Jesus in his distress strengthen your patience and suffering? What, are you served ill? Was not Christ also served ill? Christ suffered much, I tell you nay, more than you ever will. Oh then, look to Jesus. Look to him in his patience. Consider him who endured so much and find the grace to endure your distress. And then begins... Ambrose begins to bring the passage to a close. These are his final exhortations. Practice is the end of all sound doctrine. Duty is the end of all right. Now that you may do what you have heard in some good measure, here's a little instruction. Number one, by looking unto Jesus, we mean an inward experimental knowing, desiring, hoping, believing, loving, and calling on Jesus. It is not a bare, swimming, surface-level knowledge of Christ. It is not a bare thinking of Christ. As Christ hath various excellencies in himself, so hath he formed the soul with a power of various ways of apprehending so that we might be capable of enjoying those various excellencies that are in Christ. God has given us 
various senses that we might enjoy and know and delight in Christ fully. By Jesus, who is the object of this act, we mean a Savior. The one who's carried on this great work of salvation from first to last. And that eternity before all time until creation. In the creation the beginning of time until his first coming. In the first coming, the fullness of time until his coming again. In his coming again, the very end of time to all eternity. In every one of these periods, oh, what a blessed object is before us. Oh, what wonder of love have we to look upon. And then his final exhortation. Oh, Christian. How should all hearts be taken with this Christ? Turn your eyes to the Lord. Look again and again unto Jesus. Why stand ye gazing on the toys of this world when such a Christ is offered to you in the gospel? Can the world die for you? Can the world reconcile you to the Father? Can the world advance you to the kingdom of heaven? As Christ is all in all, so let him be the full and complete subject of our desire and hope and faith and love and joy. Let him be in your thoughts the first in the morning and the last at night. Shall I speak one word more to thee that believest? Oh, apply in particular all the transactions of Jesus Christ to yourself. Remember how he came out of his father's bosom for you, wept for you, bled for you, poured out his life for you, is now risen for you, gone to heaven for you, sit at God, sits at God's right hand for you, and rules all the world for you, makes intercession for you, and at the end of the world will come again for you, to receive you to himself, to live with him forever and ever. Surely, if you believe this, if there be any heaven upon earth, you will find it in the practice of and exercise of this most holy gospel ordinance, looking unto Jesus.